Hello, hello. Hello, hello. I'm Savannah. I'm Alicia. And this is Burden of Proof. You gonna make it through? I'm gonna make it through, but I'm just warning our listeners, I don't normally sound like this if you're new here. Um, I'm very sick, but we're we're here. She's pushing through. Of course I am for you guys. Anything for you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I don't like missing weeks of recording, and I was really sick back in February, so I missed a bunch then, and I don't want to miss anymore. So yeah, here we are. And I'll risk it. Risk it for the biscuit. We're I will say, no distance. I don't think that I'm contagious because nobody else around me has it. Has gotten it. So no. I don't know what it is, but. That stinks. Yeah. I'm alone. <laughs> Not that I want anybody that I love to get sick, but nobody understands what I'm going through. It's so sad. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. I don't mean to laugh at your pain. No, it is funny, though. But I'm going to laugh at your pain. Yeah. A little bit of a side note, and then we'll get right into yeah. it. Like, I think it's because I we wore masks so religiously for two years, and then this year we haven't been wearing them. Yeah. And now all of a sudden I'm sick all the time because I'm not a sickly person. I've always had a really good immune system. And then in the last like nine months, I have just been sick all the time. I feel like once a month I'm getting something. Um, well, I, yeah, between wearing masks and always using like hand sanitizer yeah. and stuff during that time. Not that we're against that. <laughs> do it. I Yeah. When necessary. Do I that. mean, I wash my hands all the time. But like, you know, we live in Florida and... Everybody around us, nobody's wearing masks. So, like, I wear them when we're in big crowds and stuff. But, you know, anyway, tangent yeah. over. I think that's why I'm getting sick all the time. Yeah. You know. My Makes parents sense. are convinced it's, like, an air quality issue somewhere, but I don't know. I mean, that could be, too, but. But I'm getting different things. Who knows? I don't know. I just have, like, laryngitis right now. It's, like, an unknown laryngitis because I'm not going to yeah. go to the doctor in this economy. <laughs> No, <laughs> but I'm better today than I was yesterday. Today's the best that I felt in like a week. So well, that's good. Woo-hoo. I'm glad. Yeah. Thank you for joining me today. Oh, of course. I feel like I need to put on my radio voice. <laughs> okay. So everybody grab a box of tissues. We have ours. It's got flowers on it. And it's I'll... a really pretty box of tissues. Oh, Oh, thank you. So this case was already on my list of things that I wanted to do, but I feel like it's very prevalent right now. Mm-hmm. All the kids who don't already know the history should know. Yeah. Should know that we don't want to go back to this place. We don't want to go back here. Nope. No, no, no. Anyway, all that being said, I feel like I should say because that sort of alluded that it was all it was about nothing but about gay rights it's not but still it wasn't just about gay rights but it definitely played a part which i'll get into well we live like i just said like a minute ago we live in florida and the politics are very precarious here right now we hate it somebody rescue us (laughs) so that's I, i think it's a good time to do something like this even if it's difficult to hear yeah so grab a box of tissues because if this doesn't, if part of this doesn't make you cry, you're dead inside. <laughs> no. So <laughs> she's getting, getting one ready. All right. So as you probably read when you clicked on today's episode, we're going to cover the murders or assassinations of Mayor George Moscone and City Supervisor 
Harvey Milk. I keep wanting to call him Harry. I don't know why. <laughs> so if I slip up, my apologies. Harvey. I always just think of the uh, the drag queen got Meg, yeah. which you haven't run into yet. You're not there not yet. yet. Speaking of, I found the app that has all of the episodes. So I've gone back to season one because oh. I never got to watch season one. And after watching so many seasons that are after season one, it's really hard. And everybody made all the jokes about the filter. Yes. By the way, if you haven't caught on, we're talking about drag race. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry about that. Yeah. RuPaul's Drag Race. Love it. I put off watching it forever. So I feel like a fool because now I'm in love with it. <laughs> you could have had this joy for so much for longer. For so many years. You could have understand all of my yeah. references for so much longer now. Yeah. Yes. But here I am. But I'm trying to get through season one and it's really hard because yeah, of that stupid filter. <laughs> I don't think I watched all of it because it was so bad. <laughs> so bad. Yeah. They were they were working out the kinks. If you um didn't skip through our little drag race rant, let me know in the comments on this Instagram <laughs> post what your favorite drag queen is, and I'll tell you at the end. We'll tell you at the end who our favorite drag queens are. Oh yeah. Remember that. I will. Because I got big feelings. <laughs> we'll talk about it later. We'll get okay. through this. Okay. And then we'll have a little pride at the end. Yeah. There you go. All right, so I'm going to go through uh, the key people in this case. I'll give you a little background on each of them, and then we'll talk about what happened, and then we'll talk about what happened after. Okay. All right. So first, I'm going to go over uh, Mayor George Moscone. George Richard Moscone was born in San Francisco, California in 1929 to Italian-American parents George Joseph and Lena Moscone. He grew up in a low-income but predominantly white Catholic neighborhood and attended Catholic school where he excelled in debate and basketball. George went on to earn his bachelor's degree in sociology on a basketball scholarship and then, pers- dunks. Yeah. And then pursued his Juris Doctor, for those of you that don't know, that's a law degree, at the University of California's Hastings College of Law. Married in 1954, just after he finished his undergrad, he and his wife, Gina, went on to have four children. Initially practicing law, his career quickly took the political path when he won a seat on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors in 1963. Whether it was his economically disadvantaged upbringing, his degree in sociology, or just an innate sense that all people should be treated fairly— George supported and defended the oppressed from the beginning. The poor, racial minorities, LGBTQ community, and even small business owners. George fought for all of them against the imbalance of power that had always and honestly still plagues American political machine. After just three years of serving on the Board of Supervisors, George won a seat in the California State Senate even going on to serve as a majority leader for the Democratic Party. An early proponent of gay rights, he and one of his allies worked to get a bill repealing California's sodomy law passed. When that was passed there, it was signed into law by Jerry Brown, who was the California governor, that took office when George had dropped out of the running. So clearly they were kind of on the same side, so to speak. In 1976, George won the office of mayor for his home city, San Francisco. As mayor, not only did he change much legislation, including granting abortion rights and establishing a school meals program, 
but he changed the face of the city service. George was the first mayor to appoint a significant number of women, racial minorities, lesbians, and gay men, including Harvey Milk, to positions on the city commissions and advisory boards. What a bio. Ta-da. I mean, go off, King. Yeah. Now, Harvey Milk. I'm going to just be honest. That's not a great last name. No, it's not. But but you'll fall in love with him. All respect. But I think I changed that. Yeah. Harvey Milk was born in Woodmere, New York in 1930 to Lithuanian immigrant father, William, and Lithuanian descent mother, Minerva. They were a small middle-class Jewish family who were strong members of their synagogue, which was well known for its community engagement. Harvey was a charismatic, popular student in school who had a number of interests and hobbies, including the opera and football. Those were very different. Mm-hmm. No surprise, he knew from a young age that he was gay, but told very few people. An advocate spirit from the start, Harvey wrote a weekly column for his college student newspaper that discussed issues of diversity, though his studies were predominantly in math and history. Okay. After graduation, he enlisted in the Navy, where he attended officer candidate school and went on to serve as a diving instructor. He resigned from the Navy in 1955 after he was questioned about his sexual orientation. Once done with the Navy, Harvey returned to New York and had a number of interesting and respected jobs, including as a public school teacher, a stock analyst, and a production associate for Broadway musicals. This is a very broad career. Yes. Through the 60s and early 70s, he was involved in advocacy and politics, but it was his move to the Castro neighborhood of San Francisco that propelled him into declaring his candidacy. In 1972, the year of San Francisco's first gay pride parade, Harvey moved there and opened a small camera shop on Castro Street. After about a year there, he ran for a seat on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, and though he lost, it was just the beginning. Along with some other gay and lesbian small business owners in the area, Harvey co-founded the Castro Village Association and was appointed president. Organizing a successful street fair in the heart of Castro, To attract more business, the association became extremely effective at balancing the power base for the LGBTQ community. In 1975, Harvey ran again for a seat as a San Francisco city-slash-county supervisor, still losing, but not by as much that time. As he became the leading political spokesman for the Castro's gay community, Harvey and Mayor George Moscone quickly became allies. George appointed him to the city's Board of Permit Appeals, making Harvey the first openly gay city commissioner in the U.S. Declaring his candidacy for the 16th Assembly District and losing again, Harvey realized he should rely on the voters in Castro. With the help of his team, including campaign manager Ann Cronenberg and Mayor George Moscone, Harvey rallied for an amendment that would change the elections for Board of Supervisors from at-large to district elections. I'm assuming that everybody understands how that works. 
for those in the back that don't. Okay, so <laughs> for anybody that doesn't really follow local politics or ha- or you're young and haven't yet had yeah. to vote on local things. I voted on local stuff, but I, I don't know what you mean. Okay, so at-large elections means that you're voting for, like in this case, for city supervisor seat. There's a board of them. There's so many that are going to represent your county. And at-large means that everybody in the county gets to vote on every single one of those seats. Okay. Districts means that they break the county into districts and the people that live in that district vote for one person to represent them. Okay. Districts are better. Yeah. Because then, I mean, our county is a perfect yeah. example our, of that. I was going to say, I know exactly what you're talking about, and our county would be a great example. Yes. So it's districts are more fair because then the people in the low-income neighborhoods, mm. people of color, the gay community, etc., can yeah. actually vote somebody onto that board that actually truly represents them instead of at large where you have, you know, a larger population of people that make it a point to vote, you know, completely in their favor yeah. and there's more of them or whatever. Yeah, I can see that in our county being such a big difference because while our, our general area is mostly conservative, there's a lot of areas of our particular county that are not. And yes. there's like there's a massive gay population where we are mm-hmm. that is only it's very concentrated, though. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Yep. You learn something new every day. There you go. So in 1977, after the passage of that amendment. Harvey ran for a third time and won, becoming one of the first openly gay men to hold an elected position in the U.S., which, of course, made national and international headlines. Now, I believe his biography on the Milk Foundation website that I will link in show notes best summarizes his goals as city supervisor. It says, quote, a commitment to serving a broad constituency, not just the LGBT people, LGBTQ people, helped make Milk an effective and popular supervisor. His ambitious reform agenda included protecting gay rights. He sponsored an important anti-discrimination bill, as well as establishing daycare centers for working mothers the conversion of military facilities in the city to low-cost housing, reform of the tax code to attract industry to deserted warehouses and factories, and other issues. He was a powerful advocate for strong, safe neighborhoods and pressured the mayor's administration to improve services for the Castro, such as library services and community policing. In addition, he spoke out on state and national issues of interest to LGBT people, women, racial and ethnic minorities, and other marginalized communities. One of his greatest accomplishments was his work against California Ballot Initiative Proposition 6, which attempted to not just sanction, but mandate the firing of gay teachers in California public schools. Sounds a little bit familiar. Mm -hmm. Much like we see today, 
this proposition was being spearheaded by a state senator who sought anti-gay initiatives to further his political career, but despite the senator's fervor and the success of similar bills being passed around the country at the time in Florida, Proposition (laughs) 6 failed. In one of his speeches during the campaign against Proposition 6, Harvey said, quote, Gay people, we will not win our rights by staying quietly in our closets. We are coming out to fight the lies, the myths, the distortions. We are coming out to tell the truth about gays. For I am tired of the conspiracy of silence, so I am going to talk about it, and I want you to talk about it. You must come out. See, Harvey believed that if it became a personal, more tangible matter for the straight citizens of this world, by learning that they too know and love someone who is gay, then they would be inclined to show compassion and vote for their loved one's freedoms and rights. Yeah. Go Harvey. Now the third person we're going to talk about is Dan White. Daniel James White was born in Long Beach, California in 1946 to a large Irish-American working-class family. Predominantly raised in San Francisco, he attended Catholic school until he was expelled his junior year for violence. Oh, fun. He then enrolled in public school, where he graduated as class valedictorian. Okay. Dan enlisted in the Army, where he served as a paratrooper in the 101st Airborne Division in the Vietnam War, and was then honorably discharged in 1971. After his discharge, he spent some time in Anchorage, Alaska, working as a security guard before returning to San Francisco and becoming a police officer. Anytime I hear about Anchorage, I just start thinking about Israel Keys and I get the heebie-jeebies. Oh, no. <laughs> I've got the heebie-jeebies. Oh, no. According to the San Francisco Weekly, Dan allegedly left the police force after reporting a fellow officer for assaulting a handcuffed individual in their custody. Okay. Okay. If that's true, good on you. He then moved on to join the San Francisco Fire Department, where he became a hero in the media for rescuing a woman and her baby from a seventh-floor apartment. With the strong support of both firefighter and police unions, Dan won a seat on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors alongside Harvey Milk in 1977. Dan winning in a predominantly white, middle-class district that was known for being hostile against the gay community. Well, that made his work relationship with Harvey tenuous. Yeah. However, the two found several areas of common ground and worked together seemingly well at first. On a personal level, they were actually friends. They would meet weekly for coffee, um, according to one of the other city supervisors who will come into the picture midway. She said, no, they would meet weekly. And actually, Harvey was one of only two or three of the city hall supervisors or city supervisors to um, be invited to the baptism of one of Dan's kids. Okay, so that's pretty good. Yeah. They attempted to find ways to work together and help one another in their initiatives. Well, where they could, despite Dan's apparent inability to support gay rights. 
just seven months into Dan's term, Proposition 6 failed, and days later, Dan submitted his resignation from office. However, he said that the reason for his decision was because he couldn't support his family on the supervisor board's salary. Apparently, Dan was only informed that he would have to quit his job as a firefighter once elected to office. Oh, okay. And since leaving the firehouse, he had to find another means for income. So he and his wife had started a small business selling baked potatoes at a pier concession stand. Oh, I want a baked potato. (laughs) Unfortunately, the baked potato business was a spud. (laughs) (laughs) Potato jokes. (laughs) Bad jokes. And Dan claimed in an interview that it was unfair to both his family and his constituents that he be forced to spend so much time trying to make his business a success that, quote, the job is not being done on either front. All right. That's mature. Yeah. (laughs) Well, we'll get into Dan's maturity shortly. Okay. All right. So now that we've gone over the people's. It was the mayor's duty to appoint someone to Dan's place once he left. Yes, that is how these things work. Until the next election. And the mayor, of course, realized that it was an opportunity to turn the tables. After all, folks, this is politics. With Dan White on the board, the conservatives had the majority. But that could now change if George Moscone appointed a progressive member. So, during a press conference about what decision he would make and whether he was concerned about the police and firefighters' unions having strong feelings about his decision, George said the first priority is the people of District 8, and the second, the rest of the people in the city. And he went on to say that he wasn't sure he'd met the first priority yet. Okay. To make an already difficult decision more stressful... A week after resigning, Dan White asked for his seat back. Um, okay. Uh, okay. (laughs) Okay. I, he probably should have thought it through before he did it. I don't know if that's how this works, but I mean. Well, just as George was feeling pressure on deciding... He wasn't the only one that received pressure about Dan's leaving. Several different groups, including the police and firefighter unions who helped fund his campaign, approached Dan and pushed for him to get his job back as his vote was often the tiebreaker in their favor. Mm -hmm. George Moscone also shared in the press conference that while Dan White was certainly one of the higher qualified candidates for the job, he no longer felt duty-bound to give Dan the job back. So he publicly made it clear that he wasn't necessarily just going to go, yeah, sure. Yeah. Come on over. Which doesn't look good on anybody's part. Mm Mm-hmm. When George didn't immediately let Dan come back, Dan asked Harvey for help getting his seat back. Okay. Okay, I'm sure. You might be asking yourself, well, gee, why would you go to somebody that's on the opposite 
party. Well, I mean, I get it though, because if if the if the mayor is saying, well, I might not just let him have it back because it doesn't really work in our favor. If somebody on the mayor's side says exactly. it does work, yes. then there's no reason for the mayor not to do it. I get why he's doing it. Yeah, yeah, because he certainly. I mean, yes, him and Harvey were friendly, but well, that's yeah. the main reason that he did it. So my point is just he was playing politics too. Yeah, he like was you too. know, you you got into politics, you know how this works. Yeah, exactly. So George Moscone agreed to announce his appointment on Monday, November 27th of 1978. He said, give me the weekend. Yeah. And then I'll make my announcement. But the evening before, that Sunday evening, Dan White received a phone call from a reporter asking for his reaction to the news that the mayor was not going to give him his job back. But that's just it. That was news to Dan. Yeah, he didn't know. Apparently, devastating news. But he would not react until the next morning. At 9 a.m. on that next morning, George Moscone let board member Diane Feinstein, Feinstein, sorry, I always mispronounce that. He let her know that he was going to announce the appointment of Don Horanzi at 11 a.m. and would immediately swear him into the seat. She knew that Dan was planning on attending that session that day, was planning on coming to City Hall to sit in, Mm -hmm. and that session would begin at 2 p.m. So she said that she was trying to call his house and get a hold of him to dissuade him from showing up at City Hall. Yeah. Like, don't embarrass yourself. Just stay home. Mm -hmm. But. Something's telling me he should have listened. Little did she know, Dan was already there. Oh, no. He had called his assistant and asked her to pick him up from home and give him a ride to City Hall. Um, did he not drive? He did. But mm, so conveniently, mm-hmm. he wants somebody else to drive him there. Yes. Unbeknownst to her... Dan was carrying a revolver loaded with five bullets and ten more bullets in his pockets. Not in the pockets. He evaded the metal detectors by entering the building through a window on the side. I just want you guys to picture a grown man climbing through a window Mm -hmm. because it's funny. Dan immediately went to the mayor's second floor office, though he did not have an appointment. It wasn't unusual for board supervisors to show up unannounced. So the mayor's receptionist said, let me see. George agreed to meet with Dan. Longtime friend to George and assemblyman, Willie Brown, was actually in the office at the time. And Dan interrupted, but George said, that's okay. I need to talk to him. Willie Brown exits the office and he was the last person to see Dan White enter the mayor's office. It's giving Aaron Burr Hamilton in Washington's office. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) George had just told Willie that he planned to appoint Don Haranzi before Dan interrupted. So that's at least two people that the Uh mayor has now told, no, my intention is to appoint Don. Just moments after Dan and the mayor closed the door to the private office, staff heard raised voices. And shots. Dan had shot 
Mayor George Moscone twice in the body, and once George fell to the floor, Dan shot him two more times in the head. He reloaded his gun and then walked down the hall to the Board of Supervisors' offices. Having been trying to get a hold of him that morning, Diane Feinstein sees him walked in, and she tries to wave him down and says, Hey, can I talk to you? He brushed her off and went straight to Harvey Milk's office, where he, this is odd to me, he invited Harvey to come to his office. Huh. That is weird. Diane is down the hall. Yeah. And she says shortly after he walked down the hall and she's like, okay, she goes back in her office. She could then hear a door close. She heard shots and says she could even smell the cordite. I'm not a gun person, obviously. So I was like, what is cordite? Well, for anybody who's not a gun person, cordite is basically a type of explosive that is used in ammunition. So she could basically smell the gun smoke. Oh, my gosh. It's horrifying. Dan had shot Harvey three times, and just as he did with George, once Harvey fell to the floor, Dan shot him again twice in the back of the head. Diane rushed down the hall and realized no one else was around, which, if you're like me, my immediate reaction was, Diane, and I, Why would like, you go down the hall? Why would you come out? Well- a couple things. Number one, you have to remember this is like the 70s. So this was before like public mass shootings were a thing. Oh, yeah. No, I, yeah. We grew up in the era of mass shootings. So we're just like you hear gunshots. You just hide or play you dead. Hi- yeah. I ain't going to look. I'm not going uh-uh. to see. Especially with like all that drama going on with the politics. Oh, no. I'm going to hide nope. under my desk. Thank I'm going to find a locked closet or a cabinet that I fit uh-huh. in and just. Yep. But. We find out later also why she was quick, besides the fact that, you know, mass shootings weren't a thing yet. She rushed down the hall. She realizes that none of the other supervisors are in office yet. She reaches Dan White's office and finds Harvey face down. She said that when she reached to try to check for a pulse, she literally put her finger right into a bullet hole. Oh, that I did not need. Yeah, sorry. No, it's okay. I didn't need it, but it's <laughs> and, gross. And she realized <laughs> that he was definitely gone. Like, well, yeah, that's where if you're feeling where you're finding a pulse, that's yeah. a major artery, and then you're sticking your, nope, yes. nope, 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 nope. Diane immediately tried to call the police chief without realizing yet that he was just down the hall at the crime scene in the mayor's office. Not funny, but I'm just like, it's It's convenient. It's convenient. He eventually, of course, got word that she was looking for him. He makes his way down the hall to tell Diane that Harvey's not the only one that's been shot and killed. But Diane, this woman, wow. She goes on. She's she's a senator. And I think she's actually conservative. But... Mad props to her because of how she deals with this game, like this whole situation. She handles it like mm-hmm. a champ. She was forced to pull herself together because as the president of the board of supervisors, it was her duty to speak with the press. Yeah. And word had already spread that there was a shooting at City Hall. So there was already reporters starting to show up outside. She's like, let me powder my nose, pull myself literally, together. Yeah. Literally, I think the 
first press conference she does to initially tell them, like, the mayor and Harvey Milk have been shot and killed, was less than an hour after it happened. Wow. Less than an hour after she stuck her finger in a bullet hole. So she goes out and does this press conference. She informed the city of San Francisco just after that they had been shot and killed, which was met in, in the video. It was, you can hear the audible gasps. And if I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty sure I even heard a a rather loud, Jesus Christ, (laughs) like right after she says it. Once the crowd was shushed, she also announced that the suspect was Supervisor Dan White. I mean, is it a suspect if like we saw him walk in the office? Well, he took off. Okay, okay. So obviously, like she was pretty sure, well, he walked in and then bam, this happens. But, you know, at that point, they can't really say for sure. Once she had a bit more time to get organized, she called a more formal press conference as acting mayor. Because as president of the board, she has to now step in. And it would be just like him appointing somebody for the supervisor seat. She steps in until the next election. The next election. So... She calls a formal press conference with other city officials as well, and she ordered an immediate state of mourning for the city and made it clear to the press that because she heard gunfire from her office, she may be called to testify and therefore cannot speak further about what happened. Good for her? Okay, good. I kind of already said this because I, but yeah. So when I was going through my research, they just kind of talked about well, okay, they're shot, and she finds them, and then they do this press conference. And the whole time I'm sitting there going, but what happened to Dan? Like, where was he? Where did he go? Where did he go? How did he get out of City Hall? But it's because of all the chaos that was happening. Well, and things aren't, like, everything now is there's there's surveillance cameras everywhere. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And it wasn't like that that in 78. Exactly. Exactly. Now you can't breathe around City Hall without somebody watching you. Yes. So he left City Hall. Like, literally just walked out. He went to a nearby diner where he called his wife and told her to meet him at a cathedral. She had no idea what had happened or what was going on, Mm -hmm. but she agreed to, I think, like, their kids were either already at a babysitter's or, like, she got a babysitter or something. She meets him at the cathedral, and he confesses to her. They then both walked to the closest police station where he surrendered and was, hold on, I'm going to try and say it like the reporter back then. Okay. He was taken to the San Francisco Hall of Justice on Bryant Street. (laughs) Okay. Though calm when first turning himself in, Dan fought back tears during his questioning, even times sobbing. He told police, quote, I've been under an awful lot of pressure lately, financial pressure, because of my job situation. He also said, I'm sorry, this is hard. He also said, quote, that Supervisor Milk and some others were working against me to get my seat back on the board. I learned of this. I was in the city attorney's office when Supervisor Milk called, stating that he, he was of that mind. 
He didn't speak to me. He spoke to the city attorney, but I was in the office and I heard the conversation that he was going to try to prevent me from taking my seat again. He went on to tell the police that he didn't have a plan or anything, but he decided to go to the office and he had his gun there, so he took it with him. With extra ammo in your pockets? Mm -hmm. Dan claimed that the mayor didn't have the courtesy to call him beforehand, but told him when he arrived at his office that he would not be getting his seat back. He said his head didn't feel right and he felt fuzzy, so when George Moscone suggested that they go in the back office and have a drink, he went. The mayor then told him that the people of his district no longer wanted him representing them and that his replacement was to be announced later that morning. Dan basically claimed that he snapped because he believed the mayor was lying to people, telling them he hadn't been a good supervisor, and then lying that the people didn't want him to represent them anymore. He said that he had left the mayor's office through a back door and started to leave when he saw one of Harvey Milk's aides, so he turned back and decided to confront Harvey as well. Dan claimed that Though he and Harvey didn't agree on a lot, he had always been honest with Harvey, but Harvey and his allies were devious. He said that when he confronted Harvey trying to tell him how much this hurt him, because he's an honest, hardworking guy with a family to take care of, Harvey just smirked as if to say, too bad, I don't care. Dan claimed he suddenly wasn't right in his head again, this time saying, quote, I got all flushed and hot and I shot him. Listen, Dan. But you shot the mayor first, and now you're saying that you shot Harvey first? No. He's saying that... He's saying that both times, like, he just snapped. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I think I didn't... I think I missed when you said he shot the mayor. No, when he was saying that he shot the mayor, he said that he basically snapped. He wasn't feeling right in the head. He was feeling oh, okay. fuzzy in okay. the head. And he snapped because he felt that the mayor was lying okay. about lying to him, lying to the constituents. I see. I see. And then when he confronted Harvey, Harvey didn't care personally about the fact that he had Dan was always so honest with him and, yeah. and worked really hard and had a family to take care of. But that time he said... Like, that was his quote. I got all flushed and hot and I shot him. And I may or may not have said it out loud as I'm alone watching the clips of that. And I thought, I get hot flashes and feel the anger of a thousand suns towards people too, Dan, but I don't shoot them. Anyway, he was, of course, arrested and placed on suicide watch in his jail cell. Yeah, that makes sense. Clearly, you're not thinking straight. But we better make sure he's got a fan. He's awfully hot. He's very hot today. He's very hot. So the people of Harvey's district were shocked, confused, but mostly mourning not only the loss of two lives, but also what they knew could have been with George and Harvey in City Hall fighting for their rights. Mm -hmm. Not shockingly, many people also focused on the need for gun control. It's 1978. <laughs> I hope they, I hope those people know we're still here. Here we are. It's only gotten worse. Oh, yeah, well. The people in Dan's district were in a state of shock and confusion. 
As they claimed, they never thought he was capable of such a thing, and they voted him into office because they thought he was going to do a a lot of good, but clearly he didn't. Apparently he did a lot of bad. The Moscone family were not only left to grieve the sudden death of the husband and father that they loved, but they had to do so with the publicity of him being assassinated. Mm Mm-hmm. Which his kids were, I think his youngest was probably like middle school age. Okay. So it's not like they're little and don't understand. They know exactly what's going, what's going on. on. Yeah. Meanwhile, people showed up in droves to City Hall, some to try and find out details, some just to mourn. Mm-hmm. Eventually, the gathering grew and turned into a candlelight vigil spanning from City Hall steps all the way to the Castro District. Thousands then gathered during the mayor's and Harvey's memorial services as the city mourned the fallen leaders. However, the two memorial services had very different tones. Okay. George Moscone's service was what you would expect of an elected official, attended by those in government, both past and present, Eulogies were given by those closest to him, including his children. And while their tone spoke out for justice, there was certainly no really rallying going on. It had a very mournful feel to it. Harvey Milk Service, on the other hand, was literally like a rally cry, including from the pastor, or I'm not sure, like he had his... Garb. His garb, his... What he wore looked yeah. a lot like what a priest would wear, but I don't, yeah, but I don't know Harvey wasn't Catholic and I don't think, so may, maybe like Episcopalian or something like that. But anyway, it's definitely at a different church because I know George Moscone's funeral actually took place at the same cathedral that Dan White walked and met his wife at Ooh, to ironic. confess. Yes. But Harvey was not Catholic, so. Harvey's funeral was attended by what looked like the entire LGBT community, and they were rallying. It got loud, and rightfully so. Once both men were laid to rest, Diane Feinstein had some big decisions to make. She had actually been the one to lose the run for mayor against George Moscone. But regardless, and this is why I said mad respect to her, she still decided that she would keep everyone he had appointed in, in their positions, only making changes when she ran again and won the position for herself. That is, she, you know what? You know what? That is, that is honor. Like, honestly, mm-hmm. and that's somebody who in politics had every position to turn the table around. And chose to do the honorable thing. Mm-hmm. And like that, I that's so much respect for her. Yes. Diane even appointed Don Haranzi mm-hmm. to replace Dan White, just as George intended. And when it came out that Harvey had left audio recordings with his wishes in the event of his death, She took Harvey's recommendation of three men to replace him under consideration and chose Harry Britt, who was another gay man, of course, Mm -hmm. 
With the seats on the board filled again, City Hall resumed their work. But it doesn't end there. No, because this is burden of proof. Oh, no. And so we've got a trial. (laughs) We have a trial. And more. But let's start with the trial. Dan White's trial started just six months after the shootings. Many thought it's an open and shut case. I will say, I'm going to pause before you get into the trial because I just, I do want to say that from everything that you've explained right now, I can see why people don't necessarily always look at this as a gay rights open and shut case. Yeah, I'll touch on that. Because it does seem really intrapersonal. Oh, it was. You know, and it, and it, and it was, but it also, it's, I think it sparked something later on, um, which is why it's looked at like that. So this is a really interesting way to, to hear the case. Yes. I think I have it in my notes later on, but I'll just say it now because that's natural. Yeah. Okay. So my take on it is no. In Dan White's mind, did he kill Harvey and George because it's a gay man and somebody that advocates for the gays? No. I think in Dan White's mind, it was... You're ruining my political career. You're lying to me. You set me up kind of mentality. But how did they get there? And that's where, well, in a roundabout way, yes, it still had to do with that because they're fighting for rights that you're not willing to fight for, that you're against. And so, like, it is about the LGBT community, but it's like not in a direct way. So yeah. you've got like people on that on one side saying, yes, it's because he was gay. And you've got the people on the other side not seeing it at all and saying, no, it just had to do with politics and he was out of his mind and we'll get into his defense, which is ridiculous, by the way. But it's about all these other things. And I see it as no, it's all of it. It's, it's both. everything. Because it's- what struck me and I didn't say it at the time because I figured we would get into this conversation. But when he was talking about how Harvey was evil and all the people mm-hmm. he worked with is evil, and that to me comes back to a root of homophobia. Of oh yes, like because Harvey, would... of course, his whole team was gay people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so I don't think that Dan White would have looked at a group of straight men and thought they were evil. He would have just said, "Oh, it's politics." Probably, which is kind of what he said with the mayor. It's just a whole thing. He didn't say that the mayor was evil. He said that Harvey and his team was evil. Mm-hmm. The mayor wasn't Devious, evil because yeah. he was just playing the politics game he and filling the lying. spots. He was just yeah. lying. But Harvey and his team are inherently bad. Yes. And I think that comes in root with homophobia. So it's I think it's a big mix of everything. But it is this is the first time I'm hearing. Now, I the will full say story. this. I wasn't going to touch on it because the only place that I saw it was there was an, a movie made, which, by the way, is excellent movie and it won all sorts of awards. There's a movie called Milk, all about yes, this. Yes. Sean Penn plays Harvey. Yes. It's excellent. And in that movie, they stress that Harvey kind of had the suspicion that Dan is a closeted gay, but nothing else in like my real yeah. research really. So that might have been just like a movie that. thing. So I don't know if they just kind of threw that in there in the movie yeah. to make it more interesting. And it's not, he doesn't come out and like say like, oh yeah, he's definitely, but he sort of implies it implies it in several conversations. Because like Harvey's people, 
his team that helped him campaign and then he brings them into City Hall to work with him. According to that movie, they were all annoyed that he was trying to be friendly with Dan White. They, mm-hmm. You know, that he would spend so much time trying to work so closely because they felt like he's a lost cause. He's a conservative. He's yeah. from that district. Why don't you put more time and effort into these other people? And then he alludes that he thinks he might be. Yeah, that feels like a reach for me from Hollywood. That's like a Hollywood yeah. reach. But it is. Yeah. So I say I don't know. Like, I, I feel like I yeah. who knows. Well, I will say I think that the way that he handled it with his wife after, like, he definitely loved his wife. Yes. That's how that's how yeah. somebody who cares about his family would handle it. He calls her, he explains it, and then they go together to the police station. Yeah. You know. Agree. So, yeah, I didn't want to make a big thing about it, but I just thought I would mention it given what you were saying. So. We good? Yes. Yes. So the trial. Of course. You might be thinking it's an open shut case. Many people did. After all, he confessed to murdering two men. Which, at the time, in California, could mean the death penalty. Da-da-da. To everyone's shock and many people's disappointment, that was not the case. The question up for debate in the trial was, should Dan be convicted of premeditated murder and sent to death row, or life in prison? Or should he just get manslaughter? with a possibility of 3 to 11 years, which had an average sentence of only 2 to 4 years. Wait, though. But, like, there's a lot of of spaces in between, you know, premeditated murder and manslaughter, isn't there? There's, like, degrees of murder. Well, it it was because there's involuntary manslaughter and voluntary manslaughter. I see. So, in this case, we're talking voluntary manslaughter, meaning... You, like, knew what you were doing. Yeah. But you snapped. There's no premeditation involved. Okay. That's a weird way to... I think that's a weird way for them to separate it, but who am I? I don't live in California. Yeah. I'm interested to see how this plays out because I can see how somebody could argue that it was... He just snapped, but also he had extra ammunition in his pocket, and why would he bring his gun to a courthouse and sneak through the window (laughs) if... You know, if you weren't planning on killing anybody, just leave your gun in the car and go through the metal detectors. Like, it's... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Mm-hmm. So once the trial started, those in the LGBTQ community who were already skeptical because of Dan being a former cop and firefighter were becoming really scared he was going to get away with it. As the rest of the city clutched their plurals, claiming they can't believe a guy like Dan, the all-American good guy, could do such a horrible thing, the gay community shook their heads in frustration, knowing that's exactly who attacks them on a regular basis. You're... That's still true. Yes, it is. Much to the LGBTQ community's horror, it only got worse when the jury was picked. Oh, no. So, that's what I was going to say. I had lost my train of thought. Now I got it back. So because we were speaking on, is this really like a crime about him being gay? Yes and no. But this right here is why I think this especially is what set people off to feel like the whole thing is rigged. 
the whole thing is yeah. has to do with gay rights and mm-hmm. all of that and homophobia. So they pick the jury, an all-white, straight jury, at a time when San Francisco's population consisted of 13% black, nearly 14% Asian, and thousands of gay people, especially men, were flocking to the city every day as it had become known as the gay capital of the U.S. So it wasn't necessarily, and I and I will preface and say that the crime, there was definitely some rooted issues, but it wasn't necessarily a homophobic crime. It was a homophobic trial and prosecution because for those of you who don't know how jury selection works, you get a certain number of no, 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 no's on both sides. And so prosecution just used them wisely on their part and made it so that it would be kind of a rigged jury. Which is not what you're supposed to do. It's supposed to be a jury of their peers. It's supposed to be an accurate representation. Mm-hmm. So it was really the prosecution, or yeah, or the defense. I I can't. I'm confused. The the def- <laughs> it was it would have been that the prosecution did not use their nose as well as they should yeah, have. Exactly. Yeah, because so, they should have wanted, you know, at least a black person. An Asian person, possibly a gay person, or even like even if they're white and straight, maybe ones that don't come from the districts of like strongly, so strongly known for being biased against yeah the victims. Okay, this is interesting. Yeah. So the state attorney held their argument that Dan showed intention to kill by leaving his house with the gun climbing in through the city hall window to avoid detection. A civil engineer that worked at city hall testified that he saw Dan White pacing outside and then crawl through the window. Yeah, it's the window that's really killing me. When the engineer called out to him and said, hey, wait a minute, he said Dan simply said, my aide was supposed to bring me a key but never showed. I'm city supervisor Dan White. I've got to go and walked away. Okay. The prosecution played portions of Dan's taped confession, at which time five members of the jury started crying as they listened. The defense argued that the sob-filled confession showed that Dan was a depressed and desperate man, clearly not in his right mind. The witnesses for the defense portrayed Dan as a good man who normally wouldn't hurt anyone, but he just snapped. Diane Feinstein testified that she had tried to reach Dan to tell him about the mayor's decision, hoping to lessen the blow, but she couldn't get a hold of him. She described him as he came into the office as pale and that he sped past her, unwilling to talk. She explained that when she heard the first shot, and this explains why she rushed out of her office, she said that she thought he likely shot himself. Oh, that makes sense. The defense attorney asked Diane if she thought Dan was the type of man that would kill someone, to which she replied, no, that would not be my opinion. Later, of course, that was misconstrued as if she was saying she didn't believe that he did it. That's not what she said, though. Yeah. So she publicly clarified that she just didn't believe that Dan was of character to kill someone in general based on what she knew about him. 
but that she did believe he killed them intentionally out of a feeling of personal betrayal that he didn't get his job back. Yeah. The defense maintained that Dan was a good man from a good background, and people like that don't just kill. Rather, Dan was extremely frustrated with crime and politics in the city. It was this frustration and fear that his beloved city was deteriorating that led to depressive episodes where he suffered from a, quote, vile biochemical change. What? And it was this change that pushed Dan to snap in the moment. They argued that Dan's decision to take a gun and a handful of bullets with him to City Hall did not prove intent. It just doesn't. They brought in multiple expert witnesses to speak on Dan's psychological state and spoke about his inability to deliberate and how he would have depressive episodes where he would do nothing but sit around his house watching television and eating junk food and drinking soda. The media ran with it, reporting it in this serious nature that him eating and drinking high sugar items like soda, cookies, cupcakes, and Twinkies could have sent him spiraling. Honestly, I just say uh, the man was ahead of his time. That describes the average American today. Yeah. <laughs> with binge eating and Netflix. <laughs> this is how we, how we were relaxing. So, it was deemed in the media as, quote, the Twinkie defense and became so infamous that it's been taught in legal studies and sociology classes ever since. It's, it's insane is what it is. Though the defense team to this day says that that detail that was just like one little part of their defense and that it was blown out of proportion and that their main point of defense was that he had diminished capacity due to a major mental illness that was triggered by bad politics and stress because Dan believed he was being used as a political scapegoat. Now, you're already aware or caught on to what direction this is going, but here we go. Mm. Hold on to your butts. <laughs> Dan White was found guilty of two counts of voluntary manslaughter with the commission of a firearm for both offenses. He was sentenced to a total of seven years and eight months. He killed two people. Two. Now, I'm going to give you the breakdown of the sentence. Okay. Because this is where they added insult to injury, in my opinion. Okay. And why the LGBT community had every right to be pissed. For the killing of George Moscone, Dan received four years with an additional two years for the use of the firearm. Um, for the killing of Harvey... Yeah, you've already done the math, I did the right? math. I did the math. For the killing of Harvey Milk, he received one year with an additional eight months for the use of the firearm. So for those of you who haven't put it together, they literally said... That it's it's not it's what I, I can't even I can't even make myself say it out loud. I George can't. Moscone's life is worth three years more than Hart. Not not that that even it wasn't isn't even, even worth yeah. it. Yeah. So needless to say, people lost their ever loving minds. I'm very upset. And on May twenty first, nineteen seventy nine, 
thousands of San Francisco LGBTQ community members took to the streets to protest Dan White's lenient conviction and sentencing. Though it began as a peaceful protest, tempers flared amongst some of the activists as police showed up to try and keep things under control. You see, many in the community knew that the police union alone had raised $100,000 for Dan's defense. And some believed there was a conspiracy to get Dan the reduced sentence. The police had been ordered to simply hold crowds back as they approached City Hall. But some of them took it upon themselves to get aggressive. Chaos ensued with those choosing violence first damaging City Hall before turning on police cars, lighting them on fire. The police force resorted to using tear gas to disperse the crowds, but the rioting only spread through the streets, with businesses being damaged and fires being lit throughout the streets for blocks. After everything calmed down, hours later, police show up in the Castro neighborhood Raiding, vandalizing, and assaulting patrons of the local gay bars, whether those people had been a part of the protests or not. Soon, they took it to the streets, attacking anyone who was unfortunate enough to be out while they screamed slurs at them. Though the police chief made his way to the Castro and stopped it once he heard what was going on, no police officers were reprimanded for the conduct with authorities claiming they had no way of knowing who ordered it, who participated in it. I am so upset. The violence subsided, but the fight continued. Thousands marched the following October in Washington for gay rights, and LGBTQ presence in San Francisco continued to grow, including those in political office and on the police force. If you're interested in learning more details about that, they call those riots the White Knight Riots. Okay. So, I mean, I have obviously some stuff in the show notes, but yeah, there's, I'm sure, more information out there on those. So, following up after, Dan White, of course, filed an appeal. Why? He should have just served. He's only going to serve like three years after parole and everything. It's too much, Savannah. Oh, my God. I'm not going to get into the detail, though, because as you can imagine, it's malarkey. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, it's dumb. (laughs) The appeal was denied, as was the petition for review by the California Supreme Court. He ultimately only served five years, being let out on parole in January of 1984. Ridiculous. He killed two people, and he's he's just living life. Due to fear for Dan's safety, Diane Feinstein wrote a letter to him asking her newly appointed chief of police, because by the way, she did run and she yes. won seat of mayor. So then she appointed a new police chief. She asked said police chief to deliver this letter to Dan White in prison just before he was about to be paroled. Okay. Asking him not to return to San Francisco. Because she feared he would be killed. Yeah. Like, she's like, listen, people are not over this. Yeah, this isn't safe. Upon Dan's release, he was quietly transported to Los Angeles, where he stayed during his one-year parole. But there were people there that didn't want him present. Yeah. There was protesting in L.A. when he showed up. He decided he wanted to go back to San Francisco after that year 
which Diane Feinstein publicly announced that she was making a formal plea that he not return. He didn't listen, though, because he wanted his wife and kids were still there, and he wanted to rebuild a life with them. But within months of arriving back in San Francisco, Dan White committed suicide by carbon monoxide poisoning. How long? It was, I think, just like three or four months after he went back to... That's horrible. Yeah, it was less than two years from his release of prison that he killed himself. Wow. At least he was smart enough that he did it in a way that his brother would find him, not his wife or kids. Okay. But still. That's horrible. Years went by with so many believing he was just a sad, desperate guy who lost it temporarily until 1998 when the detective who took Dan's confession and who also happened to be a childhood friend of Dan's convenient went public. He admitted publicly that Dan had admitted to him that he had wanted to kill more people that day, including another one of the supervisors and a close friend of the mayor's. Wow. He just didn't get the chance, I guess. A lot of people feel that George Moscone's story in all of this gets overlooked. Mm -hmm. I certainly don't want that to happen in this case because he was super important to San Francisco and California in general, being an ally and being at a time and place where you needed allies to get places. So, you know, after all, he's the reason that Harvey Milk got his foot in the door of politics there by appointing him to that first position. But I personally think that the reason it's so easy for Harvey's story to sort of eclipse George's is that Harvey wasn't just a man for the people. He was a man of the people. Mm -hmm. And one of the most profound things about Harvey's story, and this is where you want to get your tissues. (laughs) Oh, no. Is that in those tapes that I mentioned? I knew those were going to come back. Yeah. He lays out his wishes, but they were labeled in the event of my assassination because he knew that that was likely the way it was going to go. He had received multiple death threats, like from the time that he was even campaigning, let alone once he took office. But nevertheless, in his messages, he gave statements about his purpose not being about money or power but for hope hope to all the young people in his community the lgbt community that things would get better and he said quote if a bullet should enter my brain let that bullet i can't get through it (laughs) god bless okay let that bullet destroy every closet door the end i had to save that for last because i knew i would be a mess so here we are so hard all of these years later trying to put people back in the closet no stop it it's crazy how much progress we made and it's like two steps forward one step back and um Mm -hmm. it's so hard don't stay in the closet be loud be loud. You'll find community, even if your families and friends currently don't accept you. Yeah. You matter. You're meant to be here. 
We're your family now. We love you. Yes. RuPaul says it on Drag Race <laughs> all the time. We get to choose our family. And I say that like I am one. I'm not, but I'm an ally <laughs> and I have lots of loved ones who are. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I just say that because there's probably somebody going, isn't she married with kids? I don't understand. <laughs> like married to a man with kids. And but yes, I am. But I I grew up around openly gay people and mm-hmm. I cannot even wrap my head around how anybody can have the attitude that this is well first of all I'm not getting into the debate but first of all like Susan (laughs) Martha Ruth what (laughs) Esther whatever your names are Charles like how can you how can you think that that is completely a choice you don't choose what you're listen I like tall guys with dark hair that's not a choice. That's just, I can't explain it. That's what I like. Yeah. It's... So how how can you, I, I don't, I've never understood that argument. Um, And let people just be. They're yeah. not, they're That's... not hurting us. I'm trying not to cry. I know. I made it through, but now I'm trying to distract myself by folding my tissue. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, you said it. I don't think I can say it any better. Who's your favorite drag queen? <laughs> Let's move on to a positive part of this. Who's your favorite RuPaul drag queen? Oh, yeah, absolutely no. Okay, I haven't. I still haven't watched all the. Yeah, seasons. I was gonna say preface by which season you're at. So I kind of had to bounce around because I started watching on Hulu, yeah. and Hulu only has certain seasons. So until very recently, like. Last week, until last week, I absolutely unequivocally would have said that my absolute favorite is Bianca. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> Love me some Bianca. But, ugh, then I watched the season with Sasha, and I freaking love Sasha. Uh-huh. You could so have I don't, one favorite. You could have two. I have multiple favorites. I also love Jinx. Yeah. So I, I, I can't, and I, and I really like gosh there's just <laughs> just too many there's always like one or two i don't love everybody yeah you know i i can definitely give a top two for sure but i have tons of others that i love but my favorite drag rubal drag race drag queen of all time i don't think will ever change and it's Alyssa edwards <laughs> i love I Alyssa so much i like wish i was well, her i love her well, <laughs> <laughs> My name is Lisa Edwards. <laughs> I love it. I hate. I have to admit, I hated her at first, but she grew on me. And, then, and like, yeah, now I have. I, a, I have watching. a great appreciation. I don't think that I realized at first, like I took her too seriously, yes, you and take you it. don't realize, like, no, this is like this persona is supposed to be obnoxious to be funny, yeah, not. Just that you're just obnoxious. I, um, I mean, my favorite is like the compilations of her just looking in mirrors. <laughs> just like if there's a mirror, she's not listening to you. She's looking at herself. Oh, I also love Alaska. That's my second favorite is Alaska. Yeah, I, I love, love Alaska, Alaska. post drag race too, where she's doing her own stuff and she's just still very Alaska. <laughs> Hi. Hi. <laughs> I say that all the time and nobody gets it. 
Oh, I do. And my dogs love it. Have yeah. I told you that? <laughs> Betty gets know. so excited if you say hi. Hi. She gets so, I'm, my, I'm sick, so you can't tell, but we're doing Alaska. Yeah. I love Alaska. Yes, do love Alaska. Yeah. So, so anyway. But Sasha, Sasha's just, you know, why I, you know why I love Bianca because, oh, come on. Bianca's funny as shit. Yeah. But, and we I are love, Bianca. And <laughs> I'm a little bit like Bianca. A lot. I seem curmudgeon-y, but really I'm a softy underneath. Yeah. But Sasha is just the whole time, I'm like, God, you're so sweet. <laughs> you're just like, hmm. You're just like so sweet. Oh, and, and you're And you're so intelligent, but you're not neurotic. Yeah. Because that's been a thing I've noticed. Yeah. Like I, like, I really like Thorgy Thor, but Thorgy Thor was incredibly, mm. she, she's incredibly intelligent, but her neurotic ways kind of got the better of her. Yeah, for sure. Which so, is it kills me because she could have gone all the way. Yes, I believe. So. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, love Bob too, but I like Bob, but I don't want to get. I don't want to get canceled. Bob. I don't want to get canceled. Oh no! Don't talk about me on your podcast, Bob. Please, and if you do, tell me that you love me and that I'm amazing. <laughs> I love but Bob. I love Bob, but I think Bianca is funnier personally, in my opinion. Oh well, yeah. I mean, I just love. Yeah. But I think that's because we have the same humor as Bianca. Yeah. But don't get me wrong. I love Bianca. But unless I know that you love me, Bianca, don't yeah. read me. I want her to look at me with those I judgy eyes. I do. I do. I want to go home and be like, oh, God. Oh, I also love Trixie Mattel. Yes. Uh, but I didn't like Trixie on Drag Race. It wasn't until after Drag Race that I liked Trixie. I really, well, here's why. I even loved her on there because I saw it and then RuPaul said it that her video her audition video yeah. was like one of the funniest she had yeah. ever seen and she just wasn't let and i'm like yes that's what i see in her is that she's just not she's living hilarious up. now she's her just not. her and why am i blinking yeah with katya katya i i will like straight up laugh so hard i pee myself at trixie and katya but i think they bring out the best in each other oh absolutely now katya has an amazing amazing drag race um career over everything she's fantastic so yes see there's too many I just love so many of there them. There are a lot of them. But, but yes, I, overall, if I have to choose, I still probably I still probably stick with Bianca. I'm going to stick with Alyssa. I feel like cuz Bianca's around my age, like a little bit older than me, a few years older than me, I think. Yeah. And I think we would have been the best of friends in high school. Yeah. Anyway, we've wrapped up. Um again, yes. let us know who your favorite drag race drag queen is in the comments. Yes, yes. Um yeah, I hope you made it through. We love you. Thanks for listening. We love everybody here. Just know that. Yeah. Okay. I don't, know I don't have anything say. else to say. All right. Till next week. We'll yes. have a later episode, hopefully, for you next week. I don't know what's coming after this, but hopefully it's not um, yeah, you're, as heavy. Yeah, well, it's one of yours. So I hope it's usually I hope better it's, at picking. I hope it's the episode that we're recording right after this because it's, I think, would be a good follow-up. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Well, thanks for listening, guys. Bye, guys. Bye. Till next time. Bye. Thanks for listening, guys. Find us on Instagram and TikTok at Burden of Proof Pod and email us at burdenofproofpod at gmail.com.